this enormous crowd to hear about this topic tonight. So thanks for being here. I also want to th say thanks to Wendy Saddle and all of the people working so hard back there. Thank you. Let's give them a hand. We said it once, but it's free beer. So let's give one more hand to Chorus Brewery. And then as always, thanks to golden.com for um, promoting this so that we all know that it's gonna happen. Normally we have a sheet we're passing around um, so that you can sign up for a mailing list if you wanna be reminded about the talks. That's all we do is remind you about talks. Um, Carl does not have a piece of paper, but he says he'll still take your email. Oh, he has a scrap piece of paper. If you'd like to sign up, just give your email address to Carl at some point this evening and we'll put you on the mailing list. So with that, our speaker tonight has a PhD in microbiology, and it's interesting because her husband works, so she works, as we, as we know, on the good bacteria. Her husband actually works on HIV, and they collaborate in some, and, I, and we might hear more about that in the talk. Um, she has two kids. They live here in Golden, and um, she works out at the, a ways away, actually, at the um, Medical Center for the University of Colorado Denver Anschutz Medical Center. She has a lab out there. Um, but she does live in Golden, which is really cool. Um, I'd like to introduce Catherine Lozapone. So we're going to have Catherine talk for about 20 minutes, then we'll take a break for more beer or dessert, and then we will have a chance for her to answer some questions, if that's okay. So be thinking of your questions. Catherine? Okay, great. <laughs> cool. Well, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks so much to the organizers for inviting me. This is uh, fun to talk in my hometown. <laughs> so I've been, um, I had my own research lab at the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora for about two and a half years now. And before that, I was at the University of Colorado Boulder getting my PhD and my postdoctoral work. I was there for about 12 years. But the whole time, all 15 years, I lived here in Golden. And whenever I haven't wanted to take the trek out to those places, this is my favorite coffee shop <laughs> to get a tasty treat and work on my laptop. So it's, it's a pleasure to be here and speak about the research that I do. So, um, so for the past decade or so, I've broadly been researching um, the human microbiome. And what the human microbiome is, is um, the trillions of microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi that call your body their home. So to, to bacteria and fungi, your body actually represents a vast landscape with many varied habitats. So where diverse types of microbes are tunely adapted to live. So, you know, there's certain bacteria that really like the edge of your ears where it's a little colder, and some like your armpits and can make you not smell so good sometimes. <laughs> in fact, bacteria coat every inch of your body, your skin. Um, your mouth alone provides many distinct niches for bacteria, your dental plaque, your tongue, um, your inner nose has bacteria. Um, and what I've mostly studied is the bacteria that live in the, in the gut, in the gastrointestinal tract. And so that's what I'm going to talk mostly about today. 
And so sometimes to my kids who are sitting here, I call myself a poopologist <laughs> because that's one of the best ways to get at the bacteria in your gut is by sampling uh, feces. Uh, you know, there's other ways, like you can do a biopsy, but that's obviously more intrusive. I've actually recruited from some, stu some studies amongst the children right here in Golden and the lucky parents who are my friends, you know, would get an email from me like, hey, can I get your kids poo and send them this and they put it in their toilet and just uh, under the seat, go in there and then they mail it to me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't dream of doing this as a child. Or if we just wanted a simpler, smaller sample, you can just take used toilet paper, swab it, stick it in, and, and mail this to my lab. And I actually, you know, pay people to do this. So, <laughs> so why, why am I so interested in, in poo? Um, so <laughs> so um, the gut actually harbors... Um, about 100 trillion bacteria. Uh, in fact, if you took all of the bacteria on your body and scraped them off, they'd weigh about three pounds. So that's about the weight of your brain, right? And so, you know, these bacteria we're learning just have influence your health in a myriad of different ways. And this field is actually currently undergoing uh, renaissance. And so it's fun to be a part of this um, field right now because um, I, I don't know if any of you have sort of seen in the news, it's kind of getting into popular news stories. I've even seen covers on the microbiome on magazines like uh, The Economist or you know, things where you, know, you wouldn't, in addition to more obvious things like Scientific Americans. So why, why is there this interest in this uh, right now? And so really, right now, this renaissance is driven by technology. And so one thing about microorganisms is before about 1985, we didn't even know that many of the life on Earth even existed, which is funny to think about. But a lot of the diversity on Earth is microbial. And we can't see the microbes. And so to figure out microbial life, typically we've tried to culture what, what we can. And so, um, you know, you just take something, a soil, a sediment, anything, and you take uh, nutrient media and you, you see what will grow. And this is how we looked at microbes for most of you know, scientific history. But there was always something called the great plate count anomaly. So what this meant was like, OK, we can grow this many, but there's all these things we can see in a microscope that don't grow, right? And so in about 1985, that was the start of what's called culture-independent analysis. This is a way you can um, look at bacteria without growing them. And so what we do, when I get a fecal sample in this bin, what someone in my lab does, luckily I don't do it anymore, <laughs> is we take the fecal sample, extract the DNA, the genetic material, out of that sample. And then we, um, and then we sequence the genes in that sample, and we figure out what bacteria bacteria are in that sample based on the genes that we see. And, and not only what bacteria are there, but what sort of things are they capable of? What sort of enzymes, what sort of functions do we think are there based on the genes? And so that's actually how I got my foot in the door in this field. When I was in Boulder, I worked in a lab that was developing computational tools, analysis tools, for trying to analyze the sequence data to figure out what sorts of bacteria are in the gut. And what really sort of set this field flying about 10 years ago was there was these um, amazing advances in sequencing technology. So sequencing just got cheaper. They call it next generation sequencing. And so we were able to sample these 
um, bacterial communities and understand them even deeper. And so really in the past 10 years, there's just been this, uh, it's almost like if you think you get a brand new telescope and you see all these stars you've never seen before. You know, we have kind of a more sophisticated microscope and we're able to see um, things that live on our very bodies, you know, that have always been there that we never really had the tools before to understand. And so, um, and so that's really what's fueling, I think, a lot of enthusiasm in this field right now. And so when I was working, um, you know, developing analysis techniques, I kind of got involved in analyzing lots of different data sets of the human gut microbiome. So, you know, I've looked, for instance, um, you know, the study where I was getting the kid poo from Golden, we were actually trying to understand how fecal bacteria differ in kids who live in our country, in Golden, in the, in, in the USA, and we were comparing it to um, kids and adults who live in um, other cultures. So we looked at um, American Indians who live in Venezuela and in, in Malawi, people who don't eat Western diets and aren't exposed to as many antibiotics and C-sections and things that compromise the microbiome that we are exposed to in this country. And, and what we do find are really dramatic differences. You know, kids in Golden have very different bacteria in their poo than um, Venezuelan American Indians. And yes, of course, this isn't that surprising, but you know, it, it lends questions if, if these bacteria really do contribute to our health in a myriad of different ways. Um, what implications does it have that, you know, elements of modern day society, our diets, our antibiotics are changing the type of bacteria that typically colonize us? And, and a big question is, you know, as we, we live in this country in the developed world and you see infectious disease going down, other diseases are going up, more things like asthma, allergies, autoimmune disease. And, you know, there's this notion that this is kind of driven in part by this lost exposure to these bacteria that, you know, we, our bodies really expect to or are used to seeing from them living with us through all of our evolutionary history. And so, um, and so there's even some efforts to sort of, you know, save the bacteria, like, you know, going to these untouched civil, uh, civilizations and, and, and seeing what bacteria they are and understanding what kind of we should look like. So, um, so in, in my research group currently um, at Anschutz, I've really been looking at the microbiome in the context of a variety of diseases. And, and um, so, and I do collaborate largely on this with my husband, who's right there. So I married an immunologist. We met in graduate school. And our skills are perfectly complementary. And for years, he was studying HIV, uh, infected individuals, and why their immune system can't control the virus. And so now we try to understand understand um, what the microbiome looks like, what the gut microbes look like in these HIV patients um, who have compromised immune systems and, you know, can help us understand the role that our immune system plays in shaping the bacteria um, in our gut. Uh, and also the role that it may play in diseases that people living with a long term time with HIV suffer from. Um, but my lab actually has diverse other kind of more minor projects, and we look at diseases ranging from autism spectrum disorders to asthma to cancer patients who get stem cell transplants and get a complication called graft-versus-host disease, where the new immune system attacks the bacteria in their gut or on the skin. And so, um, and so, um, 
if any of you have particular interest in any of these you know, diseases, I can just ask questions in the, in the question period. But I was figuring, you know, with this time, I would talk just a little bit more about, you know, what the functions of these bacteria in the gut are and why they have the potential, why we believe they could contribute to such a myriad of different diseases. And so, um, so bacteria in your gut um, they provide health benefits in numerous different ways or health detriment in numerous different ways. So one, one way that bacteria um, promote your health is simply by taking up real estate on your body. So um, just by being there, uh, they can exclude things you don't want there, pathogens. Uh, this is a concept we call colonization resistance. And you might have experienced a breakdown in your own colonization resistance if you ever took antibiotics and as a result got um, a diarrhea or a vaginal yeast infection. This is just sort of what's happening is that you're killing all these uh, bacteria that are living on the, you know, naturally the healthy bacteria on your body, and this creates a niche for um, these pathogens to come in. And so that's one way that they, they benefit your health. A second way they affect your health is through their um, metabolism. And so when you, when you eat, right, so um, after your body, your food goes through your stomach, it's your small intestine, and there your body absorbs everything it knows how to use, sugars, amino acids, that's a major site where your body absorbs what it can do with elements of your food. But um, everything your body cannot digest passes through the small intestine into the large intestine. So, you know, you might hear, oh, fiber is really good for you, it, you know, keeps good bulking agent, keeps things moving, you know, that's, those are things that passing down into the large intestine. And when they hit the large intestine, they hit these trillions of bacteria. And these trillions of bacteria have a lot of kind of metabolic capabilities that your body doesn't. And so one thing that bacteria do are they provide extra calories uh, from your diet. So it's estimated about 20% of the calories that you get aren't directly from your diet. They're actually... Um, things the microbes make from, the, from your diet that you can then digest. So they'll take fiber and turn it into something like a short-chain fatty acid. That gets absorbed by your gut, and your body gets calories from that. I think one, one anecdote about this is something like um, there's a recently a, a paper on um, zero-calorie sweeteners, right? So zero calories because your human enzymes can't digest them. But what they found is they feed these zero-calorie sweeteners to mice, they get a, a spike in these short-chain fatty acids. The mice are, the bacteria are converting those into calories. So, you know, if, unless any of you are germ-free, we call it, you don't have bacteria, those, those are not actually zero-calorie. And what's worse, that study actually showed that the, the bacteria that grow up when they're eating these are not good for you, and they can, um, in mice anyway, promote type 2 diabetes. So it's actually promoting the very disease they're saying um, it protects from. And so, you know, I think that's um, a notion that had been noticed by some people. There's zero calories, and yet, you know, some studies had shown positive associations with type 2 diabetes, and now they're finding, you know, the microbes in the gut could be the link. To that, And so, you know, anything that your body doesn't digest can be uh, metabolically transformed 
by microbes. I mean, another thing is drugs. That's a big uh, topic in this field. Um, microbes, orally ingested drugs, hit your gut, and certain microbes can convert them to things that make that drug more toxic or less toxic or affect the dose based on what the microbes do to that drug when it's in your gut before it absorbs into your body. And so... Um, so we really need to um, look at ourselves sort of as holo organisms, not just um, what you do to your food, but what you plus your microbes um, do to your food, because that's really what your body is seeing from, from your diet. And so a third uh, way that um, microbes affect your health is by influencing your immune system. And so uh, some of you might have heard of the hygiene hypothesis, this notion that we should all... Um, be dirty and we'll be healthier for it. Um, really the strongest data for this is that in very early life there's a crucial window and, and the earlier the more crucial that exposures to microbes are very important for training your immune system. Your immune system um, as infants really needs to learn how to represent, uh, recognize what's bad and what's good, what it should attack, what it shouldn't, including yourself. You, your body learns not to um, you know, attack elements of your own body. And if, if that breaks down, you can get um, autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis or uh, um, inflammatory bowel disease. But even um, foreign things, food allergy, um, asthma, these have all potentially been linked to a lack of exposure to microbes in, in early life. And so, um, and so things like um, kids who ha are born by C-section and then get chronic ear infections and are pounded, pounded, pounded with antibiotics, these kids seem to be set up to um, suffer from some of these immune-related diseases later in life. And you can actually see this in uh, mice. If you have a one of the big tools that we use in the field is um, germ-free mice. You can grow mice in a bubble so that they have no microbes. And this is just one way you can see what the microbes do do for you. And these microbes, they eat more and they weigh less. Uh, if you feed a normal mouse, like a McDonald's-type diet, it gets obese. But not a germ-free mouse, it's, it stays skinny. Um, germ-free mice actually have less anxiety. They'll, like, run out on a platform, like, <laughs> not, not be afraid. So kind of evidence that there's this gut-brain linkage that's been um, receiving a lot of attention, too. Um, and, but germ-free mice also are set up for uh, in models of allergy and inflammatory bowel disease, they get it at increased rates. And if you add the microbes later, when the mice are adults, doesn't protect them. It's this crucial window in early life. And so, and it's not any microbe too. I often see this translated like that, oh, these exposures are so important. Let your kids play in the dirt. But it's not dirt microbes, unfortunately. All of the data really points more to human-associated fecal microbes. I mean, mom's vaginal microbes, you know, can have a good effect. But, you know, there's been data showing having a dog um, can protect against asthma in later life. But when they look at the dust of the dog, what actually the microbes that are, are associated more specifically, they're fecal microbes. Yeah, it's not like your dog's tracking in dirt. It's like he's looking at his butt and then he's looking at your kid's face. <laughs> so, so, you know, we love our dogs and we're close with them, but, you know, that's that's animal, really, microbes that there's the strongest evidence are protecting. And so it is this sort of trade-off because, yes, we have an increased incidence, but, you know, the bad often come with the good sometimes. And so, um, and so, that, uh, so, so getting a pet, though, is one way that 
is kind of a safe way because they, they don't seem to, you know, even over here people having more disease because they have a dog. So anyway, so, um, so let me see. Oh, so that's 20 minutes. So, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so, so, you know, in the question answer, I mean, I'd be happy to like talk about more specific aspects of of any of any of this. Um, but uh, but I just kind of wanted to spend this time to give an overview of the of the kind of why they do affect your health in the field. So, thanks. Capture <laughs> the questions. We're ready. Okay, everybody, we're gonna, um, Catherine has agreed to let us uh, pepper her with questions for about 20 minutes. So I'm gonna call Catherine back up. We don't usually moderate this, we just let you decide who looks friendly enough to call on. So come on up. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, sure, yeah. So the question is, what, what is my take on people taking probiotics? So I, I think probiotics have um, promise as a, you know, as a general treatment, but, um, you know, right now it's, you know, there, I've gone, you know, for instance, right here in town to the Vitamin Cottage, and there's this bewildering array of different probiotics products, and, um, you know, the, the the thing is, probiotics in general are um, not going to do you harm, and in certain circumstances, I do believe they could do you good, but I don't think they're just this magic bullet, you know, for health. Um, you know, there's sort of this notion that, oh, I'm replacing the, the good bacteria, the bacteria that should be there, but, um, you know, the probiotics that are on the shelf are actually only a extremely extreme, you know, you, an average person has hundreds to thousands of different species in your, in your gut, and the probiotic cocktail has, you know, eight to 12 maybe, you know, and they're not actually the type that are the most dominant in a healthy gut. Um, and not to say that um, they're not um, that they're bad for you. They just, you know, like for instance, lactobacillus is one. I, I more often see lactobacillus go up with disease, but I think they, they're doing good when they go up with disease. But a healthy, if I see a person crawling with lactobacillus, my first impression is, oh, that person's very unhealthy, what, what happens. So it's, it's not this notion they're replacing what's good. But, you know, there's certain, some studies that certain probiotics are good in certain circumstances. So it really sort of Depends. I mean, are you are you just trying to take them when you're already healthy to maintain health, or is it that you're taking antibiotics and you want to help with that? Is it that you have a irritable bowel syndrome or a vaginal yeast infection? And there's you know all these sorts of different um, ways that bacteria you know that someone could want to take a probiotic. And so you know it's 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 kind of to me seems situational, you know, why are you taking it and which one are you taking? Because they're all different, you know, <laughs> and so. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Are there certain cultural diets that are maybe better than others? Has there been research on different diets, maybe different fermented foods that certain cultures eat? Or? Yeah, so that's a good. So he's asking about whether there's cultural diets that might be um, specifically good. So the um, there's been a, you know a lot of interest in characterizing um, kind of. Uh, for instance, hunter-gatherer microbiomes. There was just a paper on the Hadza uh, hunter-gatherers. People in agrarian cultures who don't, who don't eat, um, you know, a lot of meat. They eat maize and cassava, and um, and you know, we we do see that they have very different microbes in their gut. 
and you know, the question is, um, is that is that a healthy state? You know, the fact that we differ, um, is it that we're all kind of sick, you know, <laughs> or is it, and that's how we want to be? And um, you know, some people believe that. You know, some prominent researchers in the field, you know, sort of have this viewpoint that, well, we block off our exposure so much to these bacteria that, you know, and, and we do have less diversity. We have less types of microbes in, in our gut um, here in this country. And so, you know, so some people sort of think, oh, well, well, like there was this one guy, Justin Sonnenberg and his wife, Erica, they actually just wrote a book, but they do these mouse experiments where they feed a mouse a Western diet and just kind of show that over time the diversity drops off and just sort of say, oh, you know, we're kind of killing our microbes by not feeding them. And I think there's, you know, there's some truth to that. I think, you know, when you eat highly processed foods, you're not feeding your microbiome. You know, the fibers and things like that are what make it to your gut and and support a healthy, complex community. And 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 those um, and that is those microbes produce anti-inflammatory, beneficial metabolites that you know help your gut health. And so, you know, I do think that high fiber diets in general promote you know healthier, more complex community. But that said, you know, my whole, my whole worldview on this spinned when um, Brent and I looked at the um, microbiome of people with HIV infection because they, their microbiome actually looked strikingly similar in some aspects to people in these uh, agrarian cultures. And it just, I was like, wait, I thought that was healthy. And now I see someone with a disease um, having that sort of state in their gut. And, um, and when really looking at some of the bacteria that, so it's the difference in this culture with what we eat are more than just missing microbes, we have different microbes. And the microbes that are different in ours, what we know about those microbes, they're not bad for you microbes. In fact, some of them are ones that in mouse experiments have been shown to protect against negative consequences of our diet. You feed a mouse a high fat diet and you feed it this Bacteroides uniformis, it actually gains less weight and it's not, it doesn't have as much disease. So I think some of the microbes in our guts in this culture are actually beneficial ones that our body selects for and it helps us to tolerate a maybe not so good diet. And so, um, you know, in some senses, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I really just come to believe more strongly over time. There's not one healthy gut microbiome. It's very context specific. And, you know, your diet, you know, the same microbiome is not going to optimally digest a high fiber, you know, kind of healthy diet and Big Macs every day. You know, you might want certain bacteria if you're eating the Big Macs every day that are you know, going to help remediate the inflammation that that brings on. And if you're not eating that way and you don't have that inflammation, it doesn't matter that those microbes aren't there, you know? And so, um, and so that's something that, I mean, I, I've even talked to people from prebiotics companies saying, we need more proof, you know, the now we want, it's, it's, we can't just make claims anymore. They want, you know, scientific boards supporting it. So tell us, what would be a healthy microbiome? If there's more of a phytobacterium, is that healthy? And I'm like, well, I don't know. That goes up with IBD. And, you know, and there's not that they're bad bacteria, but I just, it's hard to pin it like, that, that is healthy. I know people who eat a lot of dairy have a lot of bifidobacteria, and so do breastfed infants. So there's certain dietary components that select for certain microbes. And if you don't have those and you're not eating that diet, doesn't mean you're unhealthy or that you should have them. So. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. There's been a lot of talk about the gut-brain linkage. And, you know, honestly, at first it was sort of one of these sort of, oh, you know, pseudoscience, like, yeah, why would your gut affect your brain? And now it's becoming pretty mainstream that everyone, uh, 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 you know, kind of appreciates that they do. And, um, you know, there's, like, I kind of mentioned that mice without mic microbes have less anxiety. I mean, there's been other mouse experiments where they've shown like mice with a certain microbiome will jump off a platform and another are more timid and they won't and then if they transfer the microbes the if you give the timid mouse the adventure seeking mouse's microbes it'll start jumping off the platform <laughs> so there's just kind of these crazy experiments out there that kind of you know have this link with um behavior and um you know, one of the things that, so your gut actually has this nerve called the vagus nerve that directly connects your gut and your nervous system and your brain. And, um, and you know, even in terms of behavior, you, you know, there's constant signaling of appetite. You know, appetite eating is a behavior that is your, you know, your gut controlling your brain, telling you you need to eat and you, you need to stop. And so, that, you know, that's one elephant. And, and honest, like one of the things I, I've, there's this one uh, book I read called uh, Infectious Behavior that talked a lot about this, where um, you know they were kind of talking about how depression is a kind of an extended sickness behavior, where you know, say you're a little ma mammal rodent and you eat something bad, you know, the best thing for you to do is to go into your uh, you know little hovel and not get out of bed and not try to eat more of that and not seek out a mate, and you know, it's sort of part of the the gut signaling to the brain you know, not to do that. And if you have this kind of constant disturbance in the gut, it can sort of set off this, you know, extended, um, you know, sickness behavior that really you can look at the roots and evolution of why that link exists. So, um, so it, you know, that's, that's an active area of research where people are looking at microbes and brain scans and showing, you know, links, and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so his question is, you know, how much of your microbiome do you get at youth, and how does, does that change, or do they stay with you through your whole life? So that's actually one of the biggest gradients. Babies have extremely different microbiomes than adults, and so over the first two years of life, there's this turnover of, um, of species until you sort of reach an adult-like state that you stay at. And I think there's probably feedbacks where what you're exposed to in early life affects what other bacteria colonize you later. But a lot of those early, very earliest microbes just get lost. I, a lot, lots of people in literature relate it to this concept of succession in ecology and forests. Like if you have a a bare soil, first kind of weedy things come in, grasses and then bushes, and then you get the mature forest and trees. So really in early life, you just have more of these weedy things that are sort of paving the way for this more complex community to form later on. And so, um, so there's not been enough research to really show the strength to which that early inoculum affects what other types come later on, but it, it's definitely the case that the very earliest microbes don't, don't tend to stick around over time. So, yeah. You said earlier that there was that short window of time where 
Yeah. Unfortunately, probably not, you know, like there is, um, I mean, the, the evidence is most strongest for that early life window. I mean, in, for instance, in those mouse experiments where they show mice, you know, that are born germ-free having increased incidence of IBD and allergic asthma in these models, if they introduce it later, it, it doesn't protect at all. Um, and so in, so mouse experiments don't, you know, support that, um, that you can, you know, kind of recap that later on but you know there might be some more subtle effect in later life but it's definitely just not not as strong as that kind of early training window I mean one actually um, I'm trying to remember this there's this other book I'm sorry I'm forgetting the name right now but there's one um, one thing that people say that uh, is not not carried by humans anymore that affect our susceptibility to these diseases. There's actually worms, parasitic worms. So like, um, you know, throughout history or even lots of populations, people have always had, you know, parasitic worm infections. And, you know, our bodies um, have to secrete certain cytokines to sort of tolerate, you know, worms colonizing us and, and, and handle that right. And, um, you know, there was big... Efforts to mitigate, you know, worm infection in this country. Nobody has worms anymore. There's actually people pur purposely infecting themselves with worms right now. You can go to Mexico, and this guy breeds them in his own body, and you know, you put a patch, and they infect you. And this person who wrote this book infected himself. He had an autoimmune disease called alopecia, where he lost all his hair. His immune system attacked all the hair, and he did. And he had a exercise-induced allergy, and he said he got, for the first time in his life, a tiny bit of hair growth back, but he wasn't sporting a full head of hair, and, you know, and so um, that's, uh, it's, it's funny, like, there's um, lots of kind of people sort of self-medicating, <laughs> this sort of thing. Yeah. What do you eat? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I eat a lot. I, I, my work has affected what I eat. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've, I've eaten over time more like nat natural whole food type products, um, less uh, pro processed stuff. You know, want to get the fiber, feed my healthy gut microbes, and there's certain additives in foods that there's growing evidence kind of affect the gut barrier, like uh, uh, dietary uh, emulsifier and surfactants, they're used as preservatives or to make things so that you can shake, you don't have to shake them or stir them, things like that. Um, some of those, have, there's growing evidence kind of can affect the barrier in your gut because they deal with these hydrophobic, hydrophilic interactions. And so I started label reading and I, you know, to try to avoid uh, those sorts of additives because I think they can um, negatively impact um, your important mucus in your gut. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, uh, that's a so fecal fecal transplants are um, very interesting topic right now. So, have you got, have any of you heard of these fecal microbiota transfer? Yeah. So, 
Um, <laughs> so this is actually a stand, it's becoming standard, not only is it voluntary, it's becoming standard clinical practice to uh, treat one particular disease. So C. diff, yeah, so Clostridium difficile is a pretty awful pathogen, and it's one of these that can colonize your gut when your healthy microbiome is wiped out by antibiotics. And so typically, you know, someone's in the hospital, they're sick, they get treated with a bunch of antibiotics, and, and C. diff um, takes over their gut. It causes a disease called pseudomembranous colitis, which is pretty awful, diarrhea, bloody stool. Um, and so, so what do you usually do to treat a pathogen? What do you use? Antibiotics. Well, antibiotics are what caused it. And so you give them more antibiotics, ones more specific to C. diff. And sometimes this works, but what happens is sometimes, obviously, it doesn't work because you're treating it with essentially what caused it. And so some people get recurrent chronic C. diff infection. It just keeps coming back, and they give them antibiotics, and it comes back, and they give them antibiotics. So some bright fellows and thinking about all of this um, colonization resistance said, well, we can't just treat with antibiotics. We've got to put back what was gone, you know? And like I kind of mentioned, the standard probiotics are just the tiniest, teensiest fraction of what's there, and they don't, they don't do it. So they said, well, let's just take a healthy donor, feces, screen it to make sure there's no obvious pathogens, and, and do a... So they pretty much, they treat the person with the C. diff with antibiotics. They do an enema, clear out whatever's there make a slurry out of someone else's stool and either path down or up, get the new uh, fecal sample in there. And it's, um, oh, it's, it's on one try, it's like maybe 92% effective and two tries, almost you know, everybody is cured. And you know, honestly, there's people who were living uh, life in diapers and wheelchairs and now because they just got someone else's poo, you know, they, um, they, they are living, you know, it's amazing. You, there's studies where they look at the microbiome and within a couple of days, they just look healthy and it recolonizes and it stays there. And so right now people are looking into fecal transplants for all sorts of other diseases. There's a inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, all sorts of autism spectrum disorders. There's research going on. Um, in this field, and um, but it, you know, I think it, 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 in, in one sense, it just shows though how little we know that we know that the, we've learned enough that we're like, oh, it's not all about killing the bad bacteria. We need the good bacteria, but we know so little about what they are that our best solution is squirting poop. You know, <laughs> you know, like I mean, really, you know, we it would be better obviously if we understood which were the specific collections of you know bacteria that um, that are doing it and, uh, you know, just make that a probiotic. But they're in there. They're in the poop. <laughs> and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, so his question was, you know, during that early window, how does your body determine what's good and what's bad? And honestly, gosh, that's actually a tough question. <laughs> you know, um, in infants, actually, something like C. diff actually colonizes infants. Um, it's not uncommon and, and don't cause disease in infants. Um, they And so some things that can cause pathogenesis in adults don't seem to hurt infants. And I've asked people in this field why, and they don't know. <laughs> and so, um, and 
yeah, I mean, I mean, kids clearly are, you know, to some degree exposed to um, to things that give them diarrhea and that give them, uh, you know, problems. And so, um, you know, if the body does see that something is invading, you know, making it through the gut barrier into into the blood, it's going to definitely, you know, attack something that is acting, you know, more pathogenic. But um, so so maybe maybe that's that's really the answer that, you know, they're really certain like commensal bacteria that stay stay in the gut, you know, are are really going to stay further away from your immune system and, you know, not trigger that bad response as much. So. Yeah. So I, uh, I consider myself part of the, uh, the gluten-hearted uh, minority in this country that has a slight sensitivity to gluten or something in gluten or something. Who knows what it is? Yeah. It doesn't stop me from drinking beer. Quite <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so, you know, as a giant scientist myself, I've done a little experiments on myself trying to figure out what it is. You can't really pin it down with different things and different Yeah, that, I mean that's an so so his question was with regard to gluten intolerance and whether it's like the Roundup's effect on the gut bacteria that can be related to to this. And um, you know, I actually I haven't seen that research, and so it's it's hard for me to you know comment on the, you know whether there's anything to it. I mean, definitely there's precedent that you know toxins and chemicals can affect your. Uh, your gut bacteria um, in negative ways, but you know, yeah, I'd have to see the the paper. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think in, in, um, in Roundup, there's a lot of surfactants, and you know a little bit about surfactants. Is it possible that the surfactants could be real? Well, surfactants, you definitely, you know, what they they affect um, the gut mucus and barrier in a way that affects. The microbial community. So this study was in Nature magazine, where they were f- feeding mice certain f- uh, dietary surfactants and emulsifiers. You know, they noticed actually some of the bacteria that go up are actually the bacteria that eat mucus. So it's almost like if you compromise a healthy gut, there's like this uncompromised mucus that separates your bacteria from the epithelial cells. And um, you know, really part of the reason some bacteria can eat the mucus. Um, if the bacteria can kind of get, but they can't get in, you know, it's like a matrix, they can't access it. But if they get in, you know, mucus-eating bacteria can, can further, you know, compromise that barrier. Um, and, but a lot of these mucus-eating bacteria are good for you bacteria, so it's sort of like, you know, it's hard to um, sort of make sense of that data sometimes. But there's they're certainly, they saw that in the surfactant study for sure, the mucolytic bacteria. So, Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's interest in researching that. Actually, my old lab at Boulder wanted to look at that, but I haven't seen any, you know, big research come out on that yet. But uh, people believe that it does, but I, I just don't know that they've actually shown that it does. <laughs> so. We have yeah. time for one more question. Okay, one, one more. <laughs> Talk a lot about bacteria, the virus, and other viruses, other 
yeah, so that's a great, so, so he asked, so I talked a lot about bacteria, and that's, you know, my focus of interest, and it's actually what we know the most about. But he was asking about fungi and viruses. There's less research on that. Um, we know that there's less fungi in the gut than bacteria, and so that's part of the reason bacteria have got more interest. But um, they have been research showing in inflammatory bowel diseases uh, that fungi actually may be playing an important role there. And um, there's this one researcher who kind of makes a pr pretty compelling case that because of the way we look at them, we underestimate uh, the influence of, of fungi or the, the prevalence of it. And so fungi is sort of fo following behind the bacteria, but they certainly have the potential to affect our health too viruses, oh my gosh, there are so many viruses in the gut, like, you know, bacteriophage viruses that attack the bacteria, as well as, you know, more human-associated viruses, but there's a lot of bacteriophage, and um, it's so hard to understand um, what they're doing and what their importance is. I mean, one thing is they can affect the dynamics of the whole bacterial community by killing the winner type of, um, you know, concepts. And so definitely viruses play a role. They're harder to look at than bacteria. Like bacteria, we have like this one marker gene that we can relate all the bacteria Whereas viruses, there's not that one gene, and you have to sequence all of the genes, and many of the viruses have never before been described or explained, and so it's really difficult uh, data to interpret. But we do know there's a ton of them in there. <laughs> so, cool. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. One more. <laughs> Yeah, that, so his question is about whether, um, you know, you could increase the health of the gut, not through the bacteria, but just by increasing mucus production itself. Um, you know, I'm not that familiar with any research in that area, but that's certainly so many of these diseases that are sort of going up are just linked to gut barrier dysfunction. They call it gut permeability, toxins, things that shouldn't getting out of the gut into the body. There's certain, I mean, this is a little circular, but there's certain bacteria that actively promote mucus production. And so, and I think certain even probiotics, even, you know, off the shelf are known to do that. And so really some some bacteria can exert beneficial impact through mucus production. I, I can't think of other ways, you know, to, to promote it. Um, I can think of lots of ways you can destroy it. <laughs> but, yeah. So kind of avoiding things that destroy it is good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Yay. All right, Catherine, thank you. I think on behalf of everyone here, that was totally fascinating, amazing information. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate everybody coming out tonight and enjoying this Golden Beer Talk. Next month, our August speaker is a guy some of you may know named Jacob Smith. He's a former mayor of Golden, and we are asking him to do a talk, which we, are we really calling it that? 
We're, we're calling it Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And he's going to tell us about uh, some of his experiences working at, um, in the U.S. Senate and kind of what it was like to be in Washington during tumultuous times. Uh, so that should be a pretty interesting talk, and we look forward to seeing everybody back here in August. Thanks, everybody.